Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Father, we do thank you that you are an awesome God and that you work in our lives. And Father, I pray that we would learn uh, the things that are in front of us today, uh, that we would understand what Elijah had to go through as he suffered from the pain of Jezebel, and that you answered Elijah's prayer, even in Elisha's time, Father. But you are a God that moves and you care and that you are doing things in a precise pattern and a, price, in a precise way. I pray, Father, that we'd understand the things that are happening in our lives are things that you care about. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you are a loving, sensitive, caring, concerning God. And I pray, Father, that we would understand the, the, just tonight's chapter. And uh, we lift it up to you and, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And, and that is my thesis as we prayed that as we're going through these, uh, really there's about 10 chapters here from, second, uh, from 1 Kings chapter 18 all the way to 2 Kings chapter 10 or so, is one massive thought. And that whole thought is, is here's someone with a problem. Someone's really bothering him. Elijah was really, really being troubled by this wench Jezebel. It just irked him to no end. And he cried and he pouted and he threw a little tenter tantrum. He gave up. He was suicidal. He was at wit's end. And at that time, God comes up to him and speaks to him. And he says, I want you to do three things. So here he is, a man in the midst of his pain. And God says, I want you to do these three things. One was to appoint the enemy's king, a new king of Israel, and then a replacement for him. But just for the matter that there was a task that was, that, that was given and God saying, once these three things fall into place, you're going to have an answer to your prayer. And in the midst of that, sometimes we're in, the, uh, in a struggle in our life and God comes up and he says, I see your pain. I see it. I want to do something about it. I care about you. Now, be patient with me while everything comes together for God's plan to work at the right time at the right place. And uh, we've watched this now come into where Ahab was uh, the wicked, you know, king that was married to Jezebel. He was slaughtered in battle. He tried to steal Naboth's vineyard. And God says, you're not going to murder and take possession. You're not getting away with this. And uh, Ahab, the king, was slaughtered. And now Jezebel's time is coming. And there's things that are happening. And, and there's lessons for us to learn for what we can do in the midst of pain. And tonight's chapter is a bizarre chapter. It, it has an ugly ending to it, and we want to understand what that is, because I think it's an important point. We don't want to mitigate it or underestimate it. But let's get into the story now. It says, uh, chapter 3 of 2 Kings, verse 1. It says, Jehoram. Jehoram now is going to be the brother of the guy that died last week, if you were with us. The guy was uh, Ahaziah, and both Ahaziah was the son of Ahab, right? And he died after two years because he fell through the lattice. And then Elijah comes up and says, you're going to die. You ain't going to make it. What, you don't think there's a God? And remember that whole story? And now, uh, since he dies at an early age, his brother is going to take over for him. So he's still son of Ahab, if you would. So, so it says, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, 
and reigned 12 years. So each time when it talks about one king of either Israel to the north or Judah to the south, it always gives you that time reference of the other king. So it says in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, then Jehoram becomes king. And it's just, they don't give you the year, but they're, you know, that's their point of reference that they're giving you when these things start to take place. And so Jehoshaphat is the good king to the south. He's been on the throne for, I'm sorry, 12 years. And now all of a sudden, brother takes over up to the north for the other brother that died. And um, if you can remember, Jehoshaphat was also reigning during the time of Ahab, right? Ahab, wicked king. Jezebel is still the queen mother, if you would. Uh, her husband died, so she puts her son on the throne. And you can just see that she's pulling the strings of her son, saying, boy, you'll do what I tell you to do. I'm your mother. And she's still operating. And Jehoshaphat was the good king that asked for, you know, spiritual guidance. Uh, and uh, Ahab says, I got 400 prophets running around here, or whatever it was, 200 prophets, and they're all false prophets. And he goes, don't we have a prophet of the Lord? And this guy comes up, and he was just the unnamed prophet. I forget his name, if he was minor guy. And he goes, you know, he was real sarcastic. And he says, you know, I go out and you're going to die in battle. You're going to get ripped apart. And so Jehoshaphat fought with Ahab, and then Ahab died in that battle. So that becomes important background for us to go into this, because now Ahab's son is going to want to go into battle as well with Jehoshaphat. But anyway, verse 2. And he did evil, this is speaking of Jehoram, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he wasn't a good king either, being the queen mother on the throne. Though it says in his defense, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. So he's not going to be as, as extreme, and he's not going to allow his mother to run him to such a point. Nevertheless, uh, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. And if you could remember, those were two calves, one up in Dan and one down in Beersheba. And they uh, turned around and, uh, it wasn't Beersheba, it was... Uh, Rama, I think, some other middle ground city. He put two calves up there and they always kept idolatry in the land. And so the commentator is telling you he still, he still didn't sell himself out for the Lord. He sold himself out to idols. And uh, he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Uh, now it says, Mesha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And uh, he used to pay the king of Israel 10,000 lambs in the wool of, uh, I'm sorry, 100,000 lambs, in the wool of 100,000 rams. So, uh, and it came about when Ahab died, Jehoram's father, the king of Moab, another country, right, rebelled against the king of Israel. And, uh, and uh, King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And then he went and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, the good king to the south, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, that's the exact same thing he said to Ahab as Ahab asked him to fight a battle against uh, Ben-Hadad, right? King of Aram. And now another enemy just off to the south. Moab's got to be to the south of Aram. Um, Aram, then Moab's the country. It's on the other side, if you would, of the Dead Sea. 
I wish I had my little drawing chalkboard here. But um, basically, when we said that uh, to rebel is that, you know, this guy, Mesha, the king of Moab, he, he used to have to pay a tax. So I explained this, and it's kind of an important concept, that if you were in battle between two countries, you lost the war, is what you would do, meaning that you lost, is that meaning that you'd have to take and pay a tax to the other king. And so this was their tax. 100,000 lambs every year would have to be coughed up. And then the wool of 100,000 rams would have to be paid. So obviously Ahab was a, a pretty good military guy. Uh, and so he'd taken over Moab, beaten him in battle. Now the king turns around and says, Ahab died in battle and I ain't paying you. You know, you're the son. I don't want to pay you anything anymore. Na 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 na. I've given up and no, I'm not paying taxes anymore. So at, at this point, Jehoram has to take it as an insult. And he says, we've got to do something about this. So he starts to rally the troops and he's going to go back to Jehoshaphat again. He says, Jehoshaphat, we've got to go to battle again. These guys are supposed to be paying their taxes to us. This is an insurrection. It's an insult to us. Let's go fight. And Jehoshaphat once again says, look, I'll be with you and I'll go to battle with you and I'll strengthen us as a people. We're both Jews. We have to be united for the cause. So my people are your people. My horses is your horses. And notice even uh, Jehoram at this point, he's asking questions and he is looking for answers and direction. And he says, verse eight, well, which way shall we go up? And he answered the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, if I had my little map, you would understand that if we had Israel up here, Judah down here, Aaron would be way up here, and then we have on the other side of the Jordan River in the middle, you'd have the Sea of Galilee up here, and then you'd have the Dead Sea down here, and then you'd have Moab over here, and then Edom's even further down to the south. So the king of of Judah here, Jehoshaphat's going to say, why don't we go down through the south, through the wilderness, to the other side of the Dead Sea, and then cut back up, and we'll hit them from the flank. Instead of going in the easy way, crossing the Jordan, and uh, going through the rich, plush land, and attacking the guy head on, we'll come up from the south, go through the desert, and attack him. A, a surprise attack from the flank, if you would. And so, that's the way the, the battle strategy is being laid out. Jehoshaphat says, how are we going to fight this battle? And he says, by the way of the wilderness, through the desert of Edom. So, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah. They're going to follow the game plan. And the king of Edom, and so now they're going to throw the Edomites, uh, which was uh, Esau, right? The descendants of Esau. They were good guys. They're going to get thrown into the mess as well. So, we're going to get three kings ganging up, right? To come against the Moab. Moabites who were rebelling and they made a circuit of seven days journey and there is no water because they're going through the desert right through the uh, Dead Sea region for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said alas for the Lord has called um, these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So the king of Israel is now jazz. He's saying, look, I got all my buddies together. We're going to go whoop on this guy and we're all united. Three of us kings are, are together for the cause of whooping on Moab. But Jehoshaphat, before he uh, gets going here, said, is there not a prophet uh, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So he's going to do the same thing he did with his father Ahab. And he's going to say, hey, let's get, a, let's get one of God's word in on this. Let's get a little prayer before we get involved and find out what God has to say. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, 
Elijah, the son of Seraphath, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So Elijah now was taken up last week. He was taken up in the chariot, and he left his cloak behind. And now we have Elisha, who's taken over for Elijah. And the rest of the people, the, the kings, are starting to recognize his authority and said, Hey, let's go try this guy. He's taken over. This was Elijah's disciple. Let's see what he's worth. Let's give him a run for his money and see what we can do with him. Uh, he used to pour the hands on Elijah, the water on his hands, meaning that he'd wash him and be his little servant and stuff. So Jehoshaphat, the good king, said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. They're going to take a journey to go visit him. Now Elijah said to the king of Israel, um, or I'm sorry, Elisha, he said to the king of Israel, and he's like, this is the stupid king to the north, son of Ahab, which we haven't liked. Uh, uh, Jezebel is, is his mother. And Elisha has a disdain for him. Because he goes, what do I have to do with you? He's looking, these three guys come knocking on his door and he looks right at the king of Israel and goes, what do you want? He says, go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Why don't you go find a false prophet and they'll give you a false answer. And the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. No, we're going to go fight this. This is God's will that we're here together. We're looking for a fight. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, and I love this line, were it not that I had regard for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So he's like, three guys come knocking at the door. He goes, what do you want? He, he automatically picks out the king of Israel. He says, you're the bum in the crowd. And then he says, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat's got some integrity out of the three of you. And if he wasn't here at my door, I'd slam it in your face right now. So they're like, whoa, you know. So he says, but now bring me a minstrel. I'm going to have a guy stroking a little song right now. I need some background music. And it came about when the minstrel played, that's what happens here, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Interesting characteristic to say, hey, you need a little music, and I don't know why it is, but that's what happens when you worship. You have a little music going. The Holy Spirit seems to be flowing through the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, through the music. And, and that's just the way a lot of the prophets, uh, Isaiah and all the big prophets, they sang a song. And a lot of their uh, prophecies were through the song. They would sit down, pull up a guitar, minstrel, and say, I'm going to start stroking, and you're, I'm going to sing you a song. And, uh, and it is an important aspect of us to be able to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, especially during worship. And uh, we don't particularly like it when you interrupt the sermon and say, thus says the Lord, I have a prophecy. But, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we don't mind if you do that during worship in between a song. Someone spoke up the other Sunday. I thought it was really powerful and just gave a prophetic word. And sometimes the juices of the Holy Spirit are flowing. So, so now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, so he's singing with the minstrel playing, right? He says, thus says the Lord. This is what you're supposed to do to win the battle, right? Make this valley full of trenches. I want you to go out and start digging some trenches up. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He shall also give the Moabites into your hand. 
So you've got to go out, you've got to go dig a whole bunch of valleys and a bunch of trenches, and all of a sudden, the trenches are just going to fill themselves up with water. That's the miracle. Water's going to fill up all these trenches. You've got to dig it, the Lord's going to fill it. And he says, and if that's not big enough for you, you're going to win the battle. So these guys are going through the desert. They're getting thirsty. They go, go to the prophet. The prophet says, dig some trenches. God's going to fill them. You'll have plenty of water. And then that's going to be the ticket to your success in battle. He says, verse 19, then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all springs of water and mar Dig a deep gouge in every good piece of land with stones. So you're going to have a big battle. With the battle of victory, you need to go in and continue to take over their land. And it happened in the morning about the time of the offering uh, of the sacrifice that behold, water came by the way of Edom. Don't know what that is. So I don't know, did they you know, finally tap in some big spring and it burst open and I don't know, but all of a sudden, all this water comes rushing down. The hand of the Lord kind of provides and the country, the country was filled with water. So they're down to the south in the desert and all of a sudden the desert is filled with water going running up and down through all these trenches. So the trick of the battle is now, it says, now all the Moabites, these people that were kind of up here coming down to meet them in battle, heard that the kings had come up from, to fight against them. And all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. And they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water. So there's some trick here with the light going on here at first rise. And the Moabites, as they're coming down, looking at this water, they saw the water opposite them. And to them, it looked as red as blood. So you think of a sunset with the clouds looking all pretty and pink. And for them, these guys with the sunrise are looking at this water and it looks like blood. And they said, oh, this is blood. And the kings have surely fought together and they have slain one another. So they go, we had three kings coming at us and, they, and now we're coming down to march into battle and look at all the blood everywhere. Maybe these three guys had a big blowout argument and look, now therefore Moab to the spoil. And so they're running down on the spoil and they're going to go, you know, down there, stupid, not prepared for war. They're just going to plunder all the goods they think. He says, but when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites because they were prepared for a battle, caught them off guard because of the trick with the water. So that they fled before them and they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. So they get a huge victory out of this. Thus they destroyed the cities and each one threw a stone on every piece of good land and filled it. So they stopped all the springs of water and felled the good trees until in Keir Heresheth, only they left its stones. However, the slingers went about it and struck it. So, great victory. Okay, you got the king of Judah to the south, king of Israel to the, to the north. They're combining together with the Edomites to go against the Moabites. The prophet comes up and tells them this neat little trick to dig some trenches. And they're going to see a little, you know, light shimmering off the water. And whoa! And at this point, we're like, wow, that's a good story. Next verse kind of gets weird. Because then the king of Moab, realizing he's losing real bad, saw that the battle was too fierce for him. So the Moabite king was losing pretty heavy in battle. So he took with him 700 men uh, who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. 
but they could not. So he's like, we got to break through the line at any one point. And he figured the guy, the Edomite to the south should at least be on his side a little bit and maybe he could get to his side. He can't even get that far in the battle. So it's looking bleak for him. So what does he do? He takes an act of desperation. Then he takes his oldest son who was to reign in his place and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. Public display, grabs his boy, slices his head off, I don't know, burns him alive at the stake as a human sacrifice. And there came great wrath against Israel. So Israel's going to lose the battle here. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now that's a weird story. This guy's got to turn around, take a human sacrifice and says, look, I'm losing everything I got here. I'm a pagan. This is what pagans do. I'm going to take my boy, my choicest thing that I got. I'm going to hoist him up, sacrifice him. And now we'd like to think, well, you know, this is a demonic God. This is a false God. Surely this will have no impact. And it would mean nothing against the true God of Israel. But somehow or another, it turned the tides of the war in order to send Israel back. And this guy, if I read it right, it's saying this guy who threw his son up there and sacrificed him ended up actually being successful uh, countering uh, God and his work. I, I can't get around that part. Now, I think that there's some heavy things to learn through this whole chapter. And, and if it teaches us anything, and, and we as Christians want to look at the New Testament, and also we want to see the things that are happening in front of us, we have to understand that, A, the enemy is very determined. Uh, I think uh, when we fight battles, we think, oh, you know, oh, we're a Christian, God's greater, greater is he that's in me, we like to say, and we like to go forward and think that God's going to do everything, and somehow or another we have this fantasy that we just march through life, so long as I serve God, nothing can touch me. And I don't know, I kind of read this and, and uh, it kind of strikes a little bit of the idea that, you know, if somebody's out there practicing voodoo, witchcraft and evil, wicked things and somebody's doing a human sacrifice, that somehow or another it can thwart, hinder, uh, ruin your day. Uh, I don't understand all the aspects of spiritual warfare, but it, it kind of rings a little true to me that sometimes, sometimes there are things out there that can ruin my day. I don't know, if I had a coven of 400 witches chanting every day against Dave Brown continuously, I would be naive to think that it would have no impact in my life. And as there are forces of darkness that unite together to make huge sacrifices, it can interrupt my day. It can rip us apart. It can deter us, uh, come against us and stiffen the battle. When I guess if it was just all the Lord, well, then we'd just go marching forward. But there is an, an enemy, an opposition, a wall, a battle that we do come up against. And, and I think sometimes we underestimate the strength of people to attack the church, to, to rip us apart, to, to rip you apart. We want to live in a, a rose-colored glasses life and say that there, there aren't uh, there isn't an enemy that is planning and scheming to destroy you. Oh, not me. I'm just, you know, good old Billy Bob. Nobody ever really cares about me. Well, sometimes when somebody's determined, 
And we understand that, uh, you know, we're trying to preach the gospel. We're going into Satan's camp. We're robbing Satan of his little disciples. You have to expect him to be unleashed and come against you. And you have to understand that weird things can happen. It, it, it's a battle. Don't ever underestimate the power of the enemy that wants to rip and attack us. It, it can have an effect on our day. And that should intensify us like never before to be stronger in prayer. We pray every night for a reason because we believe that the enemy never rests as well and that he's coming against us. And the moment we let down our guard, he capitalizes on us and plunders us. And sometimes we have to say enough is enough. We have to say we're going to fight. We're going to roll up our sleeves and go to work. And unfortunately, there's too many of us Christians that don't roll up our sleeves. We think everything's a game. We're playing Christianity as just something to do on Sundays to make somebody happy. And the bottom line of Christianity is you're entering into an all-out war. You're entering into you know, an enemy that wants to destroy you, your life, and have you be compromised and laughs at you and rips you apart if, if, if you're going to be vulnerable for a moment. There's a lot of things in this passage. Uh, there's a, uh, another call in this for, for effort to be made. Notice the prophet comes up and he's, he's speaking the word. And he says, uh, you need to go out and dig trenches. You, uh, you start picking up that shovel and you put your back into it and start digging. If you don't do your part, God can't do his. You have to sit down and dig the trenches. Once the trenches are there, God will fill them. And in so many times in our life, there is an obligation for us to do our part. And a lot of times we say, God, I don't want to dig the trenches. I want you to dig the trenches and you, God, you fill them. And the prophet turns around and says, no, you pick up the shovel and you go out there and you got to start to put some, some wheels in motion. You got to sit down there and lay down your life. You got to open up the door. I don't want it to make it sound like if you build it, they will come. I don't want it to make it sound like that you have to work or to earn. But there is a responsibility on our behalf to open up the door and allow the Lord to walk through it. Once again, this passage strikes you as a hard passage to say, wow, I don't particularly like to hear that. I like the all grace stories. I like to hear that there's nothing that I need to do. And the prophet is turning around and says, look, if you turn around Dig the trenches. God is the one that's going to fill them. Notice, if you would, that uh, these guys were there uh, uh, is, is, is to get the water to come. And I like that. It's water that fills the trenches. Water is the thing that is there to satisfy their thirst. Sometimes, as we uh, want the Lord to fill our lives, as we allow the Lord to fill the trenches of our lives. It's that living water, the Spirit of God that satisfies us. I like this. The very thing that satisfies us as a Christian, the power of the Holy Spirit, is the very thing that confuses and deceives the enemy. They don't understand what it is. They're looking at it and they're saying, I see, I don't see water, I see blood. Therefore, they're going to draw a false conclusion. Therefore, they're going to be deceived. Therefore, they're going to be ripped apart and they're going to fall in battle. And in many times in our life, what we call the cross of Jesus Christ, right? To us, it's the power of God. But to them, it, to those that are unsaved, it is the, it's foolishness. 
And a lot of people, we sit down and what do we see? It's the blood. We say, oh, look at the blood. The blood is what saves us. And the world looks at it and goes, you're stupid. You're telling me some guy died 2,000 years ago. God came and died. And that's supposed to make me good. They look at the blood and it causes confusion. We look at the, that as what satisfies our thirst, fills our souls, and, and is good for our cattle, for us, and to have sustenance over. I like that. So here you're watching, if you would, uh, uh, that there is a, a difference of perception. And, and, I, and you also have to pull out of this that if it were not for Jehoshaphat, God would do nothing with the whole bunch. And... Uh, and I think sometimes in our lives, God wants to bless us. He wants to pour out His Spirit upon us. He wants to take you to a new place. And you can almost see God sometimes up there going, Oh man, I wish I could just pour out my blessing upon him. I wish I could just pour out my blessing upon him. And I think he looks and he says, You know, I just look at Dave and, and you know, I see this part of Dave and I just love him. And I'm, I'm going to bless him because of that part of him. And really inside of us, there's the part of us that's good. And then we still have, you know, Jehoram and we still have the king of Edom with us. And we got all this garbage and trash that's with us. And we have a tendency to say, you know what? God just blessed me. You know, I just, you know, got this happen. I got this happen. And sometimes we could look at our lives and say, Lord, you're really blessing us. And I have a tendency to turn around and then say, well, you know, if God blessed me, I just got, you know, I don't know, this huge blessing. Then I go, you know, that just means that God must be satisfied with my life. So he has to be content with this area, this area, this area. You know, this one little problem that I think is a problem. God's probably saying no big deal with it. Don't worry about it because he's given me his blessings. And I'm sure the Lord looks and says, Dave, I'm going to bless you. But there's parts of you. If it wasn't for that one good part, I wouldn't even talk to you, Dave. This, this sin in your life, I'm going to bless you nevertheless. But this still bothers me. And we've got to understand that that's going to be the Lord working in our lives. God, God wants to bless us. God's going to bless you. You're going to have everlasting life. So long as you've got the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you've asked Christ to come into your life, your sins are forgiven. But don't be deceived. There are probably still things that the Lord is grieved with in my life. And it's my obligation not to say, well, just because I have a Jehoshaphat part of me and the, the, the king of Israel, God says, what's this doing here? We have a tendency to include everything in a big package and throw it at God and force God to accept it all. And God's looking and saying, oh, I, I like this, but I don't like that. You read the book of Revelation, you see the seven churches and he commends each one of them. says, you guys have done good in this area and you've done terrible in this area. And to him who overcomes, you've got to work to get that out of your life. And it's tough. We want the Lord to bless us. And, 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 and it is a requirement inside of us to constantly be sifting our heart to say, Lord, uh, uh, help me not to make false alliances, allegiances to things that are wicked. And so it leaves us to, to, to looking at this battle scene and to say, Lord, uh, I want to I live my life as simply and as effectively as I possibly can. To do to maintain something. You got to understand that principle. There are, there are things that we want to do in our lives as a church. 
look at it as a corporate level. Let's say that if we, we wanted to grow a church and our church growth program was that Pastor Dave is going to yell and scream and jump up and down and really hoop and holler and get everybody excited about the Lord. So we're all running around in circles and you know we're just going to run around the church and it's just going to be the power of God that night. Well, if we do that, you know, I'm not opposed to, you know, getting excited for the Lord. But there's a tendency to say that next week when we come to church, we want to do the same thing all over again, and it better be better. You have to really run twice as much because last time we ran five times around the church. This time we have to do at least six or seven or ten times. And there's a tendency sometimes to expect God to do something really great, God to do something really wonderful and miraculous, and then we always say, God, you've got to do it again, you've got to do it again. And what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to build up in ourselves uh, a standard, and then we have to exceed that standard every time. Because if you, we did this three times in a row, and then everyone started coming to church, because, man, you've got to come to Calvary Chapel, because, man, we're all running around the building, and it's just so exciting to be there. And so if you come the fourth time and all of a sudden, you know, well, church is just, you know, we're going to go through the Bible and it doesn't really feel too spiritual, then everybody kind of walks away from the church and says, wow, what went wrong? And so you have to, whatever you want to do to, to gain, to grow, to build, you have to be able to do that to maintain the same thing. So if the high level of, of energy is exerted, then you have to maintain that high level to keep going. So church should be something that is very easy to maintain. And then, you know, we say we're going to give you a chapter of the Bible every week. We're going to give you, you know, a chance to worship the Lord. That's We want God to build the church. And if I'm trusting on God to build the church, then I can do that every single Sunday very easily and say, Lord, this is your responsibility to feed the people. We're going to teach the word. We're going to worship you. We're going to be you know, plucking out the strings on the minstrel and we're going to do our part. And that's easy to maintain. And now God is the one that's responsible instead of me having to do everything. And within this characteristic, though, there has to be the framework of the things that are happening here to say, look, we're going to go to battle. There's things that we want to do, and we want to be able to say, Lord, we know that we have to dig some trenches. We know that there's a responsibility on our part to be faithful, to stand up and do the things that are necessary. We know, Father, that there is an enemy against us, and we have to have a certain sense of of heightened awareness of the things that are coming against us. But do we want to overexert ourselves to such a point that we're not going to be able to keep this up because then we're going to crash and burn and we've overdone these things? It's a very difficult balance. We're watching these, these events take place and we have to be able to say, Lord, I want you to provide. I want you, Lord, to take care of me. And as we do that, to the right degree, God provides. So what's the next chapter, chapter 4? And we'll go eight verses into it, and then we can open it up for question, comments, and criticisms. But let's go to uh, just seven verses. And it says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. So some woman comes up, and her husband was a good old boy. He was one of the prophets, a faithful guy that was in church every Sunday. And so she's, uh, 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 she says, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So you think you got problems. Here she is saying, you know, I had a good old husband. He went to church every Sunday. He was one of the prophets. And now he's dead. 
God, how could you allow this to happen? And now it's so bad that my two sons, this good God-fearing man, he died, left me here with his two sons, and they're going to be taken away to be slaves? That's not fair. So she's going up and she's complaining. And Elisha said to her, well, what should I do for you? Tell me. And she's like, well, pay my electric bill. How about that? Give me something to sink my teeth into. He says, well, what should I do? Tell me. And then he asked the question. He goes, uh, well, what do you have in your house? Well, what can we have to start to work with in order for God to bless? And she said, well, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. That's the only thing I've got for a resource is a jar of oil. And then he said, go, borrow vessels as large for yourself. Go borrow vessels at, at, at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. I want you to go grab as many pots and pans and vessels as you possibly can. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you. Top secret little mission. And your sons, behind you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So I want you to take all these empty vessels and take this one thing that you've got, pour it into this, and then you're going to find out that they're all going to be start to be filled. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. And it came about when the vessels were full. So it's the miraculous, never-ending bottle of oil that seems to reproduce itself. That she said to her sons, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one vessel more. And, and at that point, the oil stopped. And then she came and told the man of God. And he said, this is what you're going to do with all that oil. Go sell the oil, cashola, and pay your debt. Pay your electric bill. And you and your sons can live on the rest. Wow. Now that's God providing in a tangible way. We look at God and we say, Dave, nice theology. You're reading all this stuff from 2,000 years ago. Jesus walked around. He didn't have a place to eat. He didn't have any responsibility. He didn't have any kids. Nice theology, Dave, about Jesus and stuff. I've got real bills, real needs, tangible things that need to get done. How's God going to take care? Well, same thing. You take what you got. You trust the Lord with it. You pour it into the vessels. God is going to sit down there. Supernaturally, he provides. He pays. He comes up with cash flow and meets our needs. God sits down there and says, hey, look, there's a responsibility on your end of the deal. You're faithful with the things that you're, you're doing. God sees that your husband was a faithful man. He's not going to leave you for your kids to be stolen and in debt. He provides. Sometimes it requires a little effort on our part. We don't like that. We say, God, you give to me first and then I trust you. And in all the stories that are here, you're not, you're not seeing you give to God. Uh, 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 God just gives you without trusting. There's a level of faith. There's a level of trust. And you need to turn around and say, Lord, I'm going to take what I have. I'm going to give it out. I'm going to give to you, Lord. And then the Lord has, has this uh, ability to bring things back into our lives. I don't know how I can tell you other than this personally happened in my life many times where I've had to just say, Lord, I don't have anything. I'm going to take what I have and give it away. I'm going, to, I'm going to do something for you when I have nothing. And if I could say, Lord, if that's my last $100, that's the only thing I got, and this guy comes up to me, and his car breaks down, and he's got a flat tire, and, and the Lord says, I want you to go take your last $100 and give it to him, and then all of a sudden I have plenty to get me through. And I've done that too many times in my life where I've said, Lord, I'm, I'm destitute, I'm broke, I'm empty. 
And all of a sudden, one more person comes up and asks to take the very last thing that I have. And I say, Lord, you're telling me to give and to sacrifice again? I can't do that. This is crazy. And God provides, gives, multiplies things out. It's always been that way in my life. I I wish I could give you a story, but there's probably 50 stories to tell you. And just to say where I've been at the, the, the wit's end of everything that I've had and said, Lord, I can't do any more. And God says, no, you're, you do what I tell you to do. You worry about today. I'll take care of you today. And tomorrow takes care of itself. And the Lord is telling us and, and he's saying, hey, this is an opportunity. And, and yet you have to put all the other things involved with this. It's, there's an enemy out there that's sacrificing his son out on the wall to destroy you. They're determined to come after you. You have to recognize that there's a battle on the enemy that wants to rip us apart. And you better be strong enough to say, Lord, I'm going to go out and and be responsible to do the things that you're telling me to do. And I guarantee you, so long as you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in obedience, God's Spirit wants to be poured out into your lives. Even if there's garbage that you're going to bring with it, he sees the part that's right. And he says, Dave, Here's some things that bother me, but nevertheless, I'm going to bless you because there's part of you that I can live with and I love. And I don't want to bless everything in my life because I know that there's things wrong in my life. But God also is trying to say, I'm trying to bless you. I see the Jehoshaphat part of you. There's three of you, you know, standing in front of me. And because of Jehoshaphat, because of that person that is really crying out and is innocent and has its heart right towards God. If you want to divide yourself into multiple personalities... (laughs) And say, you know, make the illustration perfect. You don't want to do that. But God looks at part of us and says, yeah, Dave, there's part of you that I love. There's part of you that makes me sick. And the part of you that I love, I'm going to bless. And I care about you. And and I want you to go out and do the work. People are going to see things. It's going to satisfy your thirst. It's going to confuse the enemy. They're going to be deceived. God's going to give you a great victory. God's going to provide. Great things happen and they come through. Amen? Maybe I'll say something prophetic when the minstrel comes up. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are an awesome God, that your spirit works in a mighty way. We thank you, Father, that uh, you are here, and I pray that we'd all uh, strengthen our resolve, our determination, Father, to serve you, to love you, Father, and to live for you. Help us, Father, to maintain our walks, Father, and to do more today than ever before, and that we would serve you, Father, that we would love you. Father, I know that there's a Jehoshaphat that you love and that there is a... Uh, other parts of us that you hate, Father. And I pray that we would sift out, weed out, Father, the things that are destroying us, that we would uh, uh, look diligently, Father, in our lives to be as pure and holy as we can for you. Father, we love you, and I love this church, Father, and I thank you for the generosity that's been poured out upon us. But, Father, I pray that we, in turn, would be even more generous, Father, that we would give to all that we can to, to whoever we can, Father. I praise you, Father, for this church, and I pray that you would just cause us to be your servants at all time. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.